0: Sounds like you like that. I like that. I love that song. That song was written in the late 1950s by a guy named Peter Seeger. It was copied straight from the pages of the Bible, from Ecclesiastes. In fact, it will be our main Bible reading for today. The song was eventually recorded by a music group called The Bird's with a vocalist named David Crosby, later Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. And by the end of 1965, it was an international hit. It was the number one billboard hit in this country. It's been recorded by many artists and played in numerous movies and TV shows through the years, probably the most notable, Forrest Gump. And again, the lyrics are lifted straight from scripture in this fantastic book of the Bible that we're digging into this summer, entitled Ecclesiastes. It isn't surprising to me that these words ripped from the page of Scripture would touch hearts and become an international hit, as it's a fascinating book, one of just beautiful poetry, a beautifully written section of Scripture And before we review our first week of this message series and dig in to this most famous chapter of the book, let's pray and ask God to just speak to our hearts today. So if you would, join me in praying. Dear God, thank you for just what a good God you are. And Father, thank you that you've given us your written word because it's so powerful. Even when people don't know it's your word when it's put to lyrics and sung it will speak to hearts as the song we just finished singing did and does i pray father today as we as we read from scripture that you'll speak to our hearts i pray father i'll get out of the way and just let your word really do what it does because it's live and active And I pray, Father, that we'll have hearts receptive to embrace your direction for our life. We thank you that we can commit this time to you and ask your spirit to be at work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to go ahead and dismiss. At this time, we have a class for sixth through eighth graders. And you can be making your way to to class there, but we wanted to make sure you enjoyed that song, although they 're too young to remember it but uh, uh, hopefully they enjoyed it well, last week, we jumped right into Ecclesiastes chapter one in fact, we read uh, we we uh, read the first two chapters or at least sections of it, and the theme verse of the entire book is in chapter one verse two and Just to review, this is the only blank for today to fill in, but if you weren't here last week, just to review uh, what uh, this book is all about is that life is fleeting. Life is fleeting. Listen to these words in verses 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now we examined last word last week. This word "meaningless," which is used over and over again in Ecclesiastes. In the original language, the word is "hevel." It's the the Hebrew word that's found thirty eight times in the Book of Ecclesiastes. And although translated here "meaningless" or in some translations "vanity," it also can be translated "breath," "mist," "vapor," or "smoke." In other words, life is here today, gone tomorrow, like smoke or mist. Some have suggested that the word, which is difficult to translate, can also mean absurd or enigma, because life is puzzling. It carries this meaning that's difficult to pin down, to to try to get a hold of. In fact, verse 14 we read last week, I have seen all things that are done under the sun all of them are meaningless. Maybe if you substitute the word, all of them are an enigma, a chasing after the wind. Now, As we shared last week, some have read this book as a pessimistic book. And yet we presented last week, and we'll present throughout this series, there's another way to read this book, which is a much more optimistic reading. And that's to try to find the answer or the meaning for life. And I believe right away the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, who I believe is Solomon, is, is helping us recognize that, that we have to go beyond this life to come to grips with what the meaning of life is all about. In fact, the, a phrase that he uses over and over again is under the sun. We read that quite a bit last week in chapters 1 and 2. And so in other words, we have to look to something or someone beyond our son to find the meaning of life. Or today, as we tackle this subject of time, to really find the meaning of life and to what life is all about, we have to look to something or someone who is not bound by time as we are. So, as we dig into chapter 3, probably the most familiar of all of this book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to hear from the author or teacher, who I believe is Solomon, as he turns to the subject of time, as he looks at time from the human perspective. We'll see in these first few verses 28 examples paired together in 14 pairs of opposites. And And as one author said, life consists of good times as well as bad times. The wise learn that humans cannot accept one without the other. And so we'll see this contrast back and forth in these opening phrases. So this poem focuses on human activities that we've all experienced and we all share in common. In verse one of Ecclesiastes three, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Now we won't take time to dig into each phrase that's listed although we could. I mean, it's, it's beautiful, and there's a lot there. But let's make a few observations as we read these, as we just finished reading these first eight verses. First of all, in verse two, this is a passage, a time to be born, a time to die, that we typically read at funerals. In fact, personally, it's my go-to passage for a graveside service like the one I conducted yesterday for a dear friend and beloved member here at Southwest, Roma Wyatt. Roma who died suddenly from an apparent heart attack last weekend. We observed his celebration of life yesterday and his burial. Roma who was a devoted long-term member of Southwest served on our greeting team and it was a friendly, smiling face greeting many each Sunday, oftentimes with a coffee cup in his hand. Now you might not know Roma or know who he is when I just say his name, but my hunch is if you saw his face, you'd recognize him. It was a gentle, kind, smiling face. I will, I will miss. Roma greatly. He was a man of faith, a man of prayer. And when EMTs found him, passed away at his home last Sunday, he had his Bible on his lap. Now personally, when it's my time to go, that's the way I want to go. With God's word, the Bible on my lap. Oftentimes I read Ecclesiastes 3 at funerals because honestly, I'm at a loss of what to say. It's my fundamental belief that God is a God of comfort and that he loves us and cares for us deeply. And this week, as I wrestled with my own grief for Roma, my friend, and I tried to prepare myself for to hopefully share some words of comforts and hope to those who are grieving. I came across a quote from a minister in Texas that actually I follow on Twitter because he just has daily tweets that I find very inspiring. And this is what he put out there last week that spoke to my heart. He says, when life hurts, I affirm three truths. God sees my pain. God will meet me in my pain, and God can use my pain to grow me and bless others. These are the truths that I try to share with those who are grieving at a funeral. Yet the wisdom of Ecclesiastes 3 and this beautiful passage speaks to our lives beyond the sadness found at a funeral. Yes, it speaks to us there, but it speaks to us at other points of our life because it speaks to the brevity of our life. It also speaks to the predictability of certain seasons of our life while at the same time, the unpredictability of their timing. This poem reminds us, as verse 2 points out, that in life we experience both birth and death, both the beginning of life during planting and the end of life at harvest. The phrase in verse three, a time to kill can trip some up. And yet the Bible does talk about justifiable self-defense. And I believe there's a significant difference between the words kill and murder and sometimes that gets lost. Yet that's not the point of the author. He's simply giving us a scan of human life. And as we talked about last week, Solomon, the wise king, is journaling the various seasons of his life that he's experienced or observed in life of others as he's longing to find the meaning of life. Verse 5 Again, we're not gonna to touch on each verse, but just make a few comments as we look at this. Verse five appears to be addressing sexual matters. Actually, these are is Hebrew phrases that seem to be uh, referring to sexual intimacy. The PG version for all that are in the crowd today would be simply that there's a time for, for affection and intimacy, and there's a time to refrain. If you wanna just like have a little slogan to go with that verse, uh, at times, it's best not to have PDA, okay? So that's, that's kind of the sense of verse five. A phrase in verse six that I'm still trying to get my mind wrapped around is that there's a time to give up. Now, that's hard for me. Whether it comes to a word problem, a puzzle, or riddle... I don't want to give up. You know, if you give me a riddle and then say, you know, do you want to know the answer? I'm going to say, no, wait, because because I just want to try to figure it out. I can be stubborn that way, but, but Ecclesiastes says there's a time to give up. Another one close to that my wife would love for me to learn from is that there's a time to throw away. Now, I shared last week that I like to keep receipts. And I had a number of you come up after the service and tell me you're a receipt keeper as well. But my wife reminds me that I do not need to keep the receipts from the 1990s, okay? But my hunch is if you went down to my basement in some boxes, you'd find some receipts from the 1990s. Unless, of course, my wife got to them and purged them. I'm just curious. How many of you are keepers. I mean you you tend to you tend to file things away. It's hard for you to throw things. Go ahead. Be, be brave. Put them up there. Okay. Okay. How many of you are purgers? I mean you you Oh wow. You got some purgers. Okay. Now here's my next question. How many of you are married to someone that's opposite of you? Okay? I think that's God's joke on us, okay? or maybe it's God's way of keeping us in balance. My wife's a perjurer, so I go through the trash trying to find out what she's thrown away. <laughs> and then she's going through my boxes throwing stuff away. Now in verse seven, we read, there's a time to tear. It's most likely describing the activity when someone's mourning or someone has come to a point of repentance in their life where they're, and you can read about this in the Old Testament, where they'll tear their their clothes, their garments as a sign of, of grief or of mourning, of repentance. And then the second half is an important lesson. There's also a time to mend, okay? they sew that back up. I think that's the way the bird's version, a time to Uh, Men, a time to sow, something like that. And the second half is an important lesson that we all need to learn. That there's a time to be silent and a time to speak. I'm trying to learn this morsel of wisdom as unfortunately I have put my foot in my mouth far too many times. That's my weakness. Maybe some of you can relate to that. One of my weaknesses Of course, for some of you, you might have the opposite problem. You might be a person that needs to learn to speak up at times and speak truth when it needs to be spoken. Maybe that phrase speaks to you. And then in verse eight, some struggle with the phrase that there's a time to hate. I've had people even come up to me after a message or after a small group and say, but aren't we supposed to love people? It's important for us to realize that hate doesn't need to be addressed toward a person. But instead, it could be addressed toward sin. It could be addressed toward sin in our own lives that we hate the sin in our life. There's a time to hate when we see that which is wrong that has crept up in our life. Or maybe it's that we see oppression In the world. We see prejudices. We see we see some form of racism or something that we say, that's wrong. I hate that. There's a time to hate. Or maybe it's an injustice in the world that just uh, drives us nuts. And and Solomon says there's a time to hate. And then finally, he says there's a subject of war. And peace. Now let's remember the author of this poem isn't getting bogged down with the details of each word phrase. He's simply giving us a scan of human life and helping us see that, that life, there's all these different uh, events and occurrences in our life that come at times unpredictably. And although personally I'm a lover of and proponent of peace, I do believe there's such a thing as justifiable war. I think there's an example of that uh, that we have just observed this past week, right? World War II, the, the history of D-Day, which was a turning point in World War II. That was a war that just seems like it was really clear. There was evil that needed to be stopped. And yes, it was. it's terrible, it's tragic that people lost their lives. We don't take that lightly, and yet, in that situation, and there's others, both in scripture and in history, there is a time of war to stop evil and to protect the oppressed. Yet again, this is not the, the author's point. He's he's simply giving us an overview of time from the human perspective. Now, as we keep reading in Ecclesiastes three, we see that Solomon turns to discuss time from God's perspective. This is where it gets really interesting. In verse nine, we read, what do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. I love that passage. It helps us wrestle with time from God's perspective. And on the subject of time, one of the best quotes that I've come across in my research and study of this passage, and on the subject of time, is a lengthy quote, but I want to share it with you today. It's a quote from the French mathematician Blaise Pascal. And by the way, you just gotta love mathematicians, okay? I mean I try to bring in mathematical quotes every opportunity I get as a former math teacher. But but I, I, I love this quote because I and, and this is my theory, as I have studied some of the history of mathematicians. My theory is that when mathematicians have to... I'm sorry, this is in my notes, but it's just kind of pouring out here. But when mathematicians wrestle with stuff like infinity and limits and things that mathematicians wrestle with, I think they're drawn to that which is hard to define. In fact, in history, a lot of mathematicians end up becoming believers and theologians Some have said that's part of the problem with theology, but that's another point. But but listen to what Pascal said about time. I think he's spot on, and it goes, I think, so well with what we just read from Ecclesiastes 3. He says, We never keep to the present. We recall the past, we anticipate the future as if we found it too slow in coming, and we're trying to hurry it up or recall the past as if to stay, it's too rapid flight. We are so unwise that we wander about in times that do not belong to us, and do not think of the only one that does. Does? So vain that we dream of time that are not and and blindly flee the only one that is. The fact is that the present usually hurts. We thrust it out of sight because it distresses us. And if we find it enjoyable, we are sorry to see it slip away. We try to give it the support of the future and think how we're going to arrange things over which we have no control for a time we can never be sure of reaching. Let each of us examine his thoughts. He will find them wholly concerned with the past or the future. We almost never think of the present. And if we do think of it, it is only to see what light it throws on our plans for the future. The present is never our end. The past and present are our means. The future alone are in. Thus we never actually live, but hope to live. And since we are always planning how to be happy, it is inevitable that we should never be so. Wow. I think that butts up against Ecclesiastes 3 in a beautiful way. And I think that's the core of what Solomon is getting at when he writes to us so eloquently about time. And possibly for you, your takeaway from this message, if nothing else, is that it's important that you not live so much wrestling with the shame and regret of the past that you miss the present. Or that you not allow yourself to get so tied up in knots worrying about the future that you miss the present. Let's realize that the present is truly a gift. That's why it's called a present. And it's a present to us from God. I think that's what Ecclesiastes is saying. And let's make sure that we learn to live in the present and don't miss out on the gift that God has for us. Solomon is reminding us that if we look at time from God's perspective, we need to realize that God is at work in our lives. And when we have those special moments with loved ones, whether it be our spouse, whether it be that special, friend, whether it be our children, whether it be our grandchildren, let's make sure that we receive those times as the present that they are from God. Let's receive them as a gift from God. And let's resolve to be truly present in those moments so we don't miss out on what God wants to do in our lives, in our hearts and through us, and through our lives to others. As we wrestle with this subject of time, we're humbled. And we recognize that time is moving oh so quickly. And as we grow older, we realize that that is true. In fact, I have a mathematical explanation of why time goes faster as you get older, but I won't share that with you right now. You'll have to ask me for that later. It should cause this rustle with time. It should cause us who are finite to humbly bow before the one who is not bound by time, the one who is infinite, the one that we worship, God our creator. In verse 14, Solomon writes, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. What does that mean? God works in our lives. God works in amazing ways. He's done it in the past. He does it in the present. He'll do it in the future. And yet, God does it so that we will honor him. We will fear him with holy respect and give him the honor that he is due in our life. To find the meaning of life, which I believe the teacher Solomon is pursuing throughout this book. He's journaling as he shares about different experiences from his life, different experiences he's observed in other people's lives. He's telling us that we need to look to the one who dwells above the sun, who's not under the sun, and the one who's not bound by time. As we conclude this section of time from God's perspective, we see Solomon make a shift in his thinking when he writes in verse 15, whatever is has already been and what will be has been before. Now that's still talking about time. And God will call the past to account. As he's been talking about and thinking deeply about the subject of time, he begins to wrestle with another very deep subject, the subject of justice. And we'll conclude today by looking briefly at justice from God's perspective. We're just touching the tip of the iceberg today. There's so much more to talk about justice. But let's just look at some things we can learn from the end of Ecclesiastes 3 on the subject of justice. In verse 16, And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. It appears that Solomon, including in his journal, the frustration that many of us experienced and many of us have experienced when we see in our lives or when we see in our world a miscarriage of justice. There's just something that gets under our skin, at least it gets under my skin, and I'm sure it does for many of you, if not all of you, that when we think that somebody is getting away with something that they shouldn't be getting away with. Do you ever feel that frustration? Maybe it's somebody at work that's just always breaking the rules. They're always cutting corners. And we're trying to always do that which is right. And they seem to always get away with it. In fact, they even get promoted and you're like, ah, oh, it just doesn't seem right. I've known people or cases during my lifetime that it appeared that someone was getting away with a crime and they weren't being called to account and it just doesn't seem right that someone would get away with murder and not be held accountable and yet Solomon reminds us there's a judge who will hold each and every one of us accountable he writes in verse 17 God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Now, we all say we want justice, don't we? I mean, we say, oh, I get upset when there's a miscarriage of justice. Until, of course, we're caught doing something that we shouldn't do. Then sometimes we don't really want justice. Recently, I received in the mail a photograph of my car. It was a beautiful photograph. It was taken while I was driving through a beautiful city, the beautiful city of Toledo. It was an excellent photo. It was a clear rendering of my license plate. Now, some of you probably figured out what that photo announced, that I was driving 10 miles over the speed limits and that I had a fine. Well, when I opened that, that envelope on a Monday evening as I was sitting with my wife and we were watching TV, I ranted and raved for quite a while that it just wasn't right. I mean, I didn't see, I didn't see anything posted about that, it was, that I was being, uh, you know, uh, photographed. I said, look at these two pictures. It's obvious I was just following the flow of traffic. I'm not getting any closer to the car in front of me from one picture to the next. And then I I questioned, was the camera calibrated correctly? I mean, you know, do they really know what speed I was going? And then it hit me. It was just. I'd broken the law. I've shared some of these stories before. Yes, I have a weakness. Another one of being in too big a hurry sometime. And after I ranted and raved for a while, I realized it's justice. There was no excuse. And sometimes it comes to us. Solomon continues in verse 18. I said to myself, as for humans, God tests them. So they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the others. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. And then he concludes this chapter in verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? As Solomon wrestles with the brevity of life, the issue of justice, he comes to the end of the matter and he says, we're all going to die. We're all going to return to dust. And how do you make any sense of it? We, just like the animals, will return to the dust. I shared last week, we have a real advantage over Solomon because we live on this side of the cross and this side of the resurrection. And before Jesus died on the cross and before Jesus overcame death in the resurrection, there was a real sense of uncertainty for many and you can even see this in some of the Old Testament scriptures. What lies beyond the grave? Yesterday, when I said farewell to my friend Roma and as I saw close up the biblical truth, that we all return to the dust. I was reminded though of the great promise that we have in Jesus Christ. And I was reminded of the great promise and the great hope and confidence and assurance we have because Roma had trusted the one who'd overcome death. And because of that faith and because of his trust in Christ although it was sad to say goodbye to a friend i look forward to a bright future for roma i look forward to someday seeing him again because you see i believe because jesus died and overcame death that that because of his resurrection we can have confidence that the grave is not the end. And that because of the resurrection, we can understand that there is a meaning to life that goes beyond the grave. There's a meaning to life that goes beyond what's under the sun. There's a meaning to life that's not bound by time. Because the one who's not bound by time is the one who gives us that meaning. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, it says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until, you come, until he comes. We observe communion every weekend here at Southwest. And typically we talk about how that we're reminded of the death of Christ. We're reminded of his his love, his sacrifice, his blood that was shed for us. And we think about that as we take the bread, as we take the cup. But this passage in 1 Corinthians says that, that when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death, yes. But we're proclaiming that until he comes. You see, because we believe Jesus is alive and because we believe he's coming back, We understand that life doesn't end at the grave. And there's a meaning that goes beyond this world. And that can give us assurance when we say goodbye to a loved one that's in Christ, and it can give us hope for our future. And so today, as we take communion, yes, remember the sacrifice was made for you. But realize we're also... Proclaiming his death until he comes back. There's this anticipation of the future. There's this anticipation that we will see Jesus someday and that we will be united with him forever in a time that's not bound by time and that we'll be reunited with those who've gone before us. That gives me great hope. Let's allow this to be a time not of mourning, but a time of celebration in the eternal promise, the eternal hope we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you for just how powerful your written word is. Thank you, Father, for how that, that although Solomon maybe was still wrestling with what's the meaning of life? And is life just short and it ends? But Father, we know that with you life doesn't end. We know that with you there's eternity. And we know that because Jesus died and was raised from the dead, we too can be forgiven. Although we deserve to be punished, that would be the just thing. Because of Jesus' death for us, we're justified. We're forgiven. And we can look forward to an eternity with you. Help fill our hearts with joy, fill our hearts with celebration during this time of communion with you, the timeless God and the victorious Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.